welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is another one of our monthly reviews looking at posts we've had on the blog site. And we're almost caught up. After that winter, we are almost back where we should be, Simon. This is the review of April's posts. We're recording it in May. I can only see that as a huge success. <laughs> it's a little bit better than we've been doing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call it a success. It is quite late in May. But yes, we are getting back on track and it's great to be here. The sun is shining. There is a definite feel that winter has ended weather-wise, uh, and I think that's hopefully going to continue. It's beautiful over here in the UK and uh, really enjoying a little bit of spring sunshine. Simon, have you got any other news before we dive straight in? I know you've still been on your travels. You've been off and around again. Yeah, so we went off to Austria, to the city of Graz, which is beautiful, invited by Simon Orlob and the Austrian Society of Emergency Medicine to the ninth, I'll try this, okay, it's not going to be good, the ninth Congress der Abitsgermenschaft für Notfallmedizin, which is emergency medicine in, can we start again? No, 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 I think we definitely have to keep that. And that, my friends, <laughs> is why we're leaving Europe. It's all Charlie's fault. <laughs> the way that we were looked after in Graz, what a beautiful city, I met some fabulous people, was brilliant. And emergency medicine is not a particularly well-established specialty over there. In fact, it's really in its nascent form. But they're so enthusiastic, so enthusiastic. And the youth, the enthusiasm, the energy that that group of people had was amazing. I had some really interesting experiences with doing simultaneous translation, presenting. That was really interesting. And I did some sessions on feedback and we had some ultrasound teaching. It was basically fabulous. I have, was lucky enough to do that myself. It's one of the few times I've done a conference before you and I had a really great time. They're a lovely bunch. And yeah, it's that enthusiasm of youth, isn't it? Not just in the age of the participants, but of the specialty itself. Europe is undoubtedly, emergency medicine-wise, rather different to what we're used to. I like to think they're using us as a bit of a model and trying to catch up with where we've got to rather than telling us that we're doing it all wrong. Europe is a different system and they are working towards integrating what is essentially a new specialty into their current systems. But there's no doubt. I mean, emergency medicine exists there. It might not have the same label, but they're still seeing the same sort of patients doing the same sort of things. Access to resources there is excellent. The standard of the medicine out there is very high. What I got really excited about was I was sat in a room with young emergency physicians out there, and I thought, these are the guys who are going to be leaders of that specialty. They're going to take that through for the next 20 years and really carve a niche for it in that uh, part of the world. So yeah, really impressive, fantastic place. If you get the opportunity to go, I would go. It's, it's good to see how other people do things. And tell us a bit more about your talk. You were talking about coaching and feedback with the team. Feedback, I find, is really, really tricky. I've always said that people really like feedback, so long as it's good feedback. Did you cover a bit more about how you can coach and feedback? What, what were your main messages from your talk? Okay, so it was good fun to do, actually. I, I think feedback is essentially vital to us improving. Um, what, are, what are the headlines? One, it's better to give than to receive. True? That's always been my experience. Yeah, so it's better to give. We always think that we're brilliant at giving feedback, but actually the experience of receiving it can actually be quite tricky. And then we took some learning points that we've done on the teaching co-op course recently, and we're going to be teaching that again in October this year, around the different types of feedback. And this is really from the book, Thanks for the Feedback. And there's three broad types of feedback. Appreciation, so you're doing a good job. Coaching gives you direction about how you to improve. And then evaluation, do you meet a standard? So those are all forms of feedback. And one of the problems that we get is when we get those confused. So for example, if you've just finished the night shift from hell and you go up to your consultant and you say, you know, how did I do? And they give you a detailed coaching session about where you could improve and why you didn't do this quite right and where you're not performing as well as you should be. 
that is not going to be good because all you want at that point is appreciation. But at other times, when you really want to learn and somebody just says, good job, well, that's useless. As well. So we talked a lot about how you understand the language of the two sides of the feedback to get it right, to get it matched, to get it purposeful and to get it useful. So I had a lot of fun doing that. And there's a nice blog post, I think, on it on the site oh, beginning of the month. Yeah. So go back and have a look at that. And like anything, I think with all these conversations, they're honest conversations, aren't they? But it's about how they land and making sure that they're landing right with the person, that they're in the right place to receive them. I was on a leadership course just recently, and we're talking about honest conversations. And the the idea that being honest isn't necessarily a reason to be rude. And it's the same for feedback, (laughs) isn't it? It Just I'm giving you some feedback. Uh, I don't like your shoes. And the way you've got your hair is dreadful. I mean, that is feedback, but and it's honest, but that doesn't make it good feedback. We've got to do it in the right way so that it lands well and there's nothing, no excuse for being rude and hurtful. Absolutely. And we, we talked about that as well. We talked about this balance of positivity and negativity almost. And we've talked about this before in that we should have three times as many positive things coming out of our mouth as negative. A lot of positive feedback. And we talk about a ratio of three to one. So three times as much good stuff as developmental stuff. The next post we had in April was written by Ashley Liebig uh, with her discussion with Noah Galloway and his experiences of the war in Iraq and, and how they've coped with that. They've got a very different experience of medicine to one that I can even relate to. But I felt it really gave you an idea of what those experiences were like. I don't think any of us who hasn't been there can really understand. You know, when people say, oh, I know what you're going through. It's one of those phrases that we use in the emergency. Oh, I know what you're going through. No, you don't. You've never had your arm chopped off. I think we've got to be careful with that. But this post I found really moving and a really good one to help me put that into context. I also thought it was quite noticeable that this was different to our experience in the emergency department, where often we're not necessarily part of the experience so much with the patient as you are on the battlefield and in conflict. And Ashley and Noah are clearly bonded by something more than just the medicine and more than just the story of what actually physically happened. But their combined experience of being in the same place, of experiencing the same sort of horrors, of having the same fears and conflicts and successes and challenges creates a different dynamic between patient and, in this case, resuscitator, which has endured for many years. And I think what Noah's gone on to do, and you should read about it on the blog, to take his message and to do really quite incredible things. This guy was on the, the equivalent of Strictly Ballroom in the US. Quite amazing. And to take what happened and to turn it into something fabulous is amazing. And I think Ashley tells the story very well with Noah's permission. And I, I know that he's delighted to see it on the blog. Another topic that we're very fond of at St. Emlyn's and we'll definitely cover for one of our sections in the St. Emlyn's Live conference later in the year is that decision about diagnosis and using diagnostic tests and the way we use probabilities. And Rick's covered that again in his post that's from the 10th of April about 50 shades of black and white, how tests aren't necessarily positive and negative, but there's a whole load of grey in the middle. There is. And we talked about this a long time ago when we started with the podcast talking about diagnostics. So if anybody wants to go back and have a look at that, they can. And we put it in our risk and probability book, which is published Oh, was it the end of last year? It was about, yeah, December time. The thing is, we have this, just stop for a moment, people, and think about how we use diagnostic tests in our practice. Take something like troponin, and we talk about the troponin either being positive or negative, being above or below a threshold. Actually, if you dig into diagnostics, this is insane. There's clearly a massive difference between a troponin of 2000 and a troponin of 15. Now, okay, the upper limit that we, we act on in our department is 14. So 15 is a positive, but 2000 is much more than just a positive that you can't lump all of these things together. And similarly, when you've got a negative test, it's the same. Now, we talked about this when we talked about likelihood ratios and how they work, but 
that concept is quite difficult. It's quite mathematical, quite statistical. I think what Rick has done with some good examples, particularly around um, acute coronary syndrome and particularly around what we use in Manchester, which is called the TMAX calculator, which is a bespoke mechanism for determining how likely a patient with ACS actually has ACS based on a whole range of stuff, including the level of troponin. That's the way diagnostic tests truly work. And yet we have this insanity that the amylase is either positive or negative. The white count is either up or down. The troponin is either positive or negative. That's not how diagnostic tests work. And if you want to be a diagnostician, or as we at St. Emelin say, probabilisticians, because we're always talking probabilities, you need to understand that. Rick's quite a short post, actually, but it's a brilliant way of articulating why this is important to you, me, and to everybody who works in undifferentiated care. I have to say, if there was one subject that I could get everybody to understand better, it would be the diagnosis and using of tests. Not conditions themselves, but how each test works and what that means. Likelihood ratios, all of that, sensitivity, specificity, people get worried about it because they think it's statistics and they think it's maths, but they're actually doing it all the time. They're just doing it most of the time unconsciously, or semi-consciously perhaps, but they're just using it in a way that they may not realise. But putting a bit more science behind that, I think, is game-changing in how you approach emergency medicine. It gives you so many more tools. And it also tells you which ones aren't any good. Those times when people say, I'm just waiting for that. And you say, but you don't need that. You don't need that. That's not necessary. You've got it already. And they look at you funny like, well, I've got to, I've got to get that. No, 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 you don't need it. I think this is where we need to focus some of our aim. Emergency medicine is the best place to learn it. We're always dealing with risk. We're always dealing with probability. And goodness me, we're always dealing with diagnostic tests. This is another bit of information. Please go back and listen to those podcasts. They're from way back when, when I sound much younger, I'm sure, I hope. And they do have a lot of information. They're worth a listen. You can find them on the podcast feed. What gets me is when people come into the department and say, oh, troponin, it's a rubbish test. Or D-dimes, it's a rubbish test. They're not rubbish tests. The tests are what they are. It's people's ability to interpret them in light of the clinical situation, which is rubbish. There's nothing wrong with a test at all. If anybody comes up to you and say D-dime is a rubbish test, you can pretty much guarantee they don't understand diagnostics. But there's probably better ways of explaining that to them rather than a simple you don't understand. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah, I'm not going to say that out loud. No. I mean, you're allowed to think it. Okay. You're right that the The other thing is, of course, our most powerful diagnostic tests are both asking questions and then performing an examination. And if we could get back to that age old idea that that's what medicine would be, I'd be a happy kind of chappy. Um, And that would be a nice thing. Before we get too soapboxy, let's talk about another diagnostic test, trauma CT in pediatric patients. This was a Journal Club article from Nat. Whole body CT in children or whole body CT in trauma, should we say, is something which has been knocking around for a long time now. And I work in both pediatric and uh, adult major trauma centres, as do you, Ian. And we know that we deal with the children slightly differently to the adults. The thing about whole body CT in children is the yield from some of the investigations, particularly around the chest, is pretty low. And the question is whether we need to do whole body CTs for our paediatric trauma patients, where the incidence of severe injury we know is less, or whether we can get away with doing some more focused approaches. And essentially, this is a nice study which shows using a retrospective multi-centre cohort study. This was using the National Trauma Data Bank in the States, which is, I suppose is a little bit like TARN, but for the US. And essentially what they did is they looked at this ability to do either a whole body CT or focus CT based on what the trauma teams actually thought was going on. 
and essential cut to the chase, you're better off doing focused CT in children. And actually, that's our practice in Manchester. We don't do whole body CTs in children. Very, very few. Perhaps if a child has come in, they're intubated, ventilated, they've had a mechanism injury which could deliver significant injury all over the body. So they've been hit by a bus or fallen off a cliff or something. But those are vanishingly rare. All of our, I can't think actually when the last time I did a whole body CT, virtually everybody we're doing focused CTs for. And I think that thought is a useful thing. It follows on from what you're saying, isn't it? Diagnostic tests need to be used appropriately. You need to have the right pretest probability. Otherwise, you cannot use the test. I think in adults, we've become very liberal in our use of CT scanning. And I guess that's partly just a function of we keep finding stuff. Now, if that's stuff that we need to deal with, I'm not entirely sure, but we keep finding it. And so we keep looking for it. With kids, there is the radiation argument. And I don't think we really know what that means yet. I don't think we know what CT scans mean for cancers in 50 years time. We may well be sowing a seed that we will reap. I think it's a good idea to be careful. It surely can't be a good thing to have lots of radiation put through a growing body. It's definitely worse than having no radiation put through your body anyway, I would have thought. So this is a good idea. And if it helps us be more scientific in our diagnosis, then that must be a good thing, I think. I agree. And there is some data, I think, from Tarn in the UK, and Ross Fisher will probably pick us up on this if we're wrong. But I think it shows that if you go to a pediatric trauma center, you're much less likely to get a whole body CT than if you go to a non-pediatric trauma center, which is interesting. I think pediatric trauma center is the least combined and then it's non-pediatric at all, but a kid actually happens to turn up there. So there definitely is a difference in practice depending on what your experience and your exposure. Because you've got to remember pediatric trauma, major trauma is actually quite rare. Manchester, where I work, is the busiest center in the UK for pediatric trauma, but it's still small numbers compared to the adults. Thankfully, I mean, this is a good thing, but there isn't a huge amount of it out there. And remember, if you do work in a trauma unit, not a trauma centre, you have just as much likelihood of seeing paediatric trauma as those of us who work in trauma centres. About 50% of paediatric trauma turns up in trauma units just because it's either nearby or they're bought with mum and dad or whatever it may be. So we all need to know about this. This is important for all of us, whether you work in a major trauma centre or in another unit. So Simon, sadly, neither of us made it to the Arkem CPD conference, but St Emlyn's was still well represented. Delighted to see Dan Horner up there giving a professorial lecture, and he's shared with us the topic of that on the St. Emlyn's blog, uh, complications of anticoagulation and how to manage them. Lots of great stuff on Twitter reporting back from Dan's talk, and it was really good that we could get this for us on our blog site as well. This is a really tricky topic, I think. It is. And there's some statistics in that which are really quite frightening. I think the number of people in the UK, I think he estimates, on anticoagulation is something like 0.6 million. So 660,000 or something like that. It's a huge number of patients. And you don't have to work long in an emergency department to find some of them coming through the door. And there's a whole bunch of things which can result from them being on anticoagulation, which could be a problem for us. So things like bleeding, which is the most obvious. And then there's some advice in here about how we manage not just bleeding on warfarin, but bleeding on the DOAX, used to be known as the NOAX, but they're not new anymore. So we call them the DOAX. And how the management of that is changing. There are some specific antidotes around, which I'm sure you're aware of. But what do you do when you don't have the antidote? Or it's one way you don't have an antidote. Do we use FFP? Do we use other things to try and correct the coagulation? So there's some top tips in there. But to me, the big thing that came out is just how likely it is for us to see complications of bleeding in this group of patients. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there about adverse drug reactions. There's the issue of failure. I must admit, I hadn't thought about that. I always thought, you know, anticoagulation works. Well, sometimes it doesn't. And then there's some issues around drug interactions and monitoring. But 
to me, the point is there's so many people out there on anticoagulants. There are a significant risk just from the therapy itself that as an emergency physician, we need to have a good understanding about this. There's so much to this topic, and I think we'll persuade Dan to do a special podcast with us about it on its own, a standalone episode. This is something, as you say, so common and can be so complicated. We've got all these different agents we can use. I think there's still a bit of disagreement, but perhaps this needs to be one of those brainstem reactions that we have. Big bleed on a DOAC, on a direct oral anticoagulant. I need to know what to do right now. We only have a few of them in emergency medicine that we need to remember, but I think this is probably one of them that should be there in our armory. It's common. It's really dangerous if it happens, and we need to know what to do straight away. Now, Simon, our next post, I think you've already done a podcast on, on a different, we won't say rival because we're all jolly good friends, on a different podcast talking about the trauma top 10 papers. Now, this was another conference talk you did. Yeah, so this is down at the Trauma UK conference, which is actually a great conference if you want to go to. Um, it's themed by what you do. So they have like a rescue day, they have pre-hospital days, they have in-hospital days, and they have sort of definitive care days. It's really good fun, very, very good value for money um, based around in the Midlands. And I did the top 10 trauma papers from the from around the world for the last year. That was always good fun to do. I love doing those top 10 talks. It's good to get out there and read the literature and it's nice to put it together. We've put all the papers together on the blog so you can go and have a look at those. If you do want to listen to the podcast, which was a lot of fun to do, it was with Simon Lang, who's, well, Ian, he's almost as good at you at interviewing. Well, I mean, well, thank you. <laughs> it's really good fun to work with Simon Lang from the Research Room podcast. So if you want to actually listen to the audio of that, then pop over there. It's well worth a listen. It is really nice that we have lots of podcasts available now. This isn't a competition. The more you've got out there, the more you can choose from, and just the more there is to learn. And I think different voices in emergency medicine are really important. And to have the extra podcast coming and for us to cross-pollinate between them, I think is great. So please do go and listen to that. You'll be able to find it easily from the blog post that's on the site. And there's some details of all the papers there. If you disagree with Simon's choice of the top 10, or you maybe got some others you think that he should have included, please do let us know. There's always bits that we sometimes miss because you can't read everything. Even if you're Scott Weingart, you can't read every paper in the world. So let us know if there's other ones that we should have included there. Bit of a trauma bent to these next few. We then had a guest post talking about penetrating trauma in Philadelphia. Yeah, so Zaf Kassim trained with us in Manchester before he went off to the States, and he's now making a name for himself there as a high-end resuscitationist currently working in Philadelphia. And one of the papers that came out of the, the, the Trauma Care UK conference was the fact that in the States, if you arrive by police vehicle or private vehicle from penetrating trauma, you're more likely to survive. Even when you take account of the physiological changes in the patient, you're still more likely to survive. And we have this issue that for penetrating trauma, it's very much a time critical disease for some of the patients who've been stabbed or shot. And any delay presumably increases mortality. So we were talking about this and we were talking about the UK where sometimes pre-hospital times can be very long because it takes a while for the ambulance service to get in, for instance, if the scene is not safe. In the US, in Philadelphia, they have a policy that if the ambulance is not there for a penetrating patient, they get to take them straight to the ED. That is their rule. And so there's actually a nice picture there of the police emergency drop-off. It's difficult for them because it means it is a screecher breaks, a police officer arrives outside, guys in the back seat who's been shot, shot or stabbed. But it kind of works. And... It's made me stop and think about whether or not for really time critical conditions, we need to focus very much on transportation to hospital. Certainly in, in Manchester in the past, I don't have any recent data, but in the past, I would certainly know that patients would be within a, a very small distance of the hospital, but have very prolonged scene times, which are difficult to understand. 
part of the responsibility, I think, of pre-hospital teams, and I'm on one of those, is to know when to hang around and when to get moving. And that's part of the training, really, and sometimes has to be you're encouraging the land crew that you just got to go. Yeah, I know I'm a doctor. I know I've got these other things I can do, but now is not the time. Let's just go. Go now. And that is a really difficult decision to make. And I think the thing we've got to be most careful about is how we then feedback. We're back to that word again. How we feedback what crews have done. Please, if you are standing in a recess room and you receive a patient from a pre-hospital team, it's very hard for you to picture what that scene has been like. It's very hard for you to decide whether they made the right call or not. You can make some, com- you know, some thoughts about it in the cold light of day later, but please don't start making comments at the end of the bed about, oh, why'd you bring him here? Oh, you could have been you over a long time, weren't you? It can be hugely distressing to be at the roadside. The decision making is very different than having a patient at waist height in a well lit room. So just be very wary of how you do that. And on the other side of that, most ambulance services, HEM services will be happy to have you out as an observer. So if you work in an ED, but you've never been in the back of an ambulance and never been on scene with a patient, do try and do that. They'd be delighted to have you along, just in the same way that we're delighted to welcome them into the emergency department. Simon, the final post from April, and perhaps one of the things that I think we've been most proud of over the last year or two is these books we've been putting together where we've amalgamated blog posts. And this is the one about health and well-being, the Resuscitationist Guide to Health and Well-being, where you've put together all of the bits and pieces that we've done over the recent times into one easy-to-digest single resource. And I think you should be hugely congratulated on it. Great thing. Is there anything you wanted to mention about that process or anything that's in the book you particularly wanted to highlight? I think it's one of the four pillars of St. Eminence, isn't it? It's one of the four major themes of what we do. So well-being, the philosophy of emergency medicine, evidence-based medicine, and then great clinical care, clinical excellence. I think to highlight it as being important, really, we've put it out there as a collated series of blogs built into a book with you know an intro and outro and all that kind of stuff and some great links in there. What I want people to do is to, by all means, have a look at it, but share it, you know, get that information out there. There's some really practical stuff about, you know, how do you organize your night shifts? And there's some more sort of reflective things about how we work in the environments that we do and how we cope with difficult times and tricky situations. It's it's going to be a first edition. I mean, I think we've already got some other content, which is going to come into later books. But what I would like people to do is have a look. I hope you enjoy it. Hopefully you find something useful, but please just share it. It's free. That's what it's there for. And of course, there are other books as well, if people haven't heard of those. We've mentioned one already. This is our third book on health and well-being. We've got a few more planned. We've also got Nat's book on 101 Lessons from Sydney Hems, which is really good fun. And then we've got Risk and Probability, which we've referred to already, as you say. And that takes us through the basics and actually some of the more advanced stuff around how you understand risk, probability, diagnostics, uncertainty, and the real grey bits of our practice, which is, to be honest, that's why we need clever people to do emergency medicine, because it's not black and white. It's very grey and you have to have a good brain to do it well. So that's the summing up of April. It was a busy month, lots going on, bits of travel in there, uh, conferences, bits and pieces. And we'll be back, I hope, soon after the end of May with May's summing up. Anything else you've got looking coming up in the future, Simon, you wanted to mention? Well, a few things coming up in the future. The one in the past that we forgot to mention, of course, was the Baddy M Fest, which we've still not really talked about on the blog. Oh, sorry, we've not talked about on the podcast. There are four blogs on that so far, and I'd recommend you go and have a look at those. I think we're going to try and maybe get hold of some of the Bad EM guys and do something separate on the conference itself. But just to say that the Bad EM Fest conference was 
amazing and they're going to do one in 2019 i strongly recommend people to go although it might be quite small so maybe i should discourage people from go so i can go myself i don't know but that was spectacular we need to talk a little bit more about that coming up in the future we've got a very busy summer lots and lots of things to do doing an emergency surgical skills course with caroline leach in manchester soon and of course we've got st emlyn's live and the teaching cup course is coming in october so tickets are selling quite well for that now so if you haven't bought one already i would get in there and do so it's always fun to chat to you all. It's great to be in touch, Simon. Well done on all of the stuff you've been doing on the blog site. So much still going on. I hope that everyone's life is just picking up a little bit. There's some sunshine. There's some summer parties coming. The barbecue's fired up. And uh, everyone's seeing a bit of a bright light before winter, no doubt, joins us again. Let's enjoy the good times. Simon, it's always a pleasure. And it's always great to be talking to you all. Take care, everyone. Yeah, thank you so much, Ian. And just, just a final thought, actually. Are we the only podcast in emergency medicine that talks about the weather at the beginning and the end of pretty much every episode? Is that just the most British thing out there? I think it's hugely important. Hugely important. And uh, and I don't think we should stop. In fact, I think we should talk about the weather more. In fact, I think we should talk about weather and not about any medicine. So next time will be the St. Emlyn's Meteorological Society discussing the weather. And we'll try and cover every country that we uh, are currently being listened to in. So I, I think that'll be a, a riveting episode and I highly recommend you listen. I think it will be the, probably the most popular of all time. I think it will. Go and enjoy the sunshine, Simon. See you later.